Hey, podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual biblical symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8 to 9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Fenton for a live recording of the Bible as Literature podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who have ears to hear. Register online at ephesusschool.org. Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. At the start of the New Testament, the Matthaean genealogy remedies an incorrect understanding of Abraham's line by belittling the kings of Judah, highlighting the failure of tribal lines. Thus, Matthew reorients his readers to the original intent of Abraham's household as a mechanism of adoption into the Lord's fold through his teaching. To claim Abraham as a tribal or national banner is to diminish the Lord's promise, making Abraham's seed just like any other human line. In Matthew, as in Genesis, the Lord is forced to intervene to ensure that the folly of David's seed does not jeopardize God's promise of life to Abraham and his descendants. All human lines are dust to dust. Thus, the Methane Jesus challenges loyalty to tribe and clan with a stern warning. Leave the dead to bury their dead. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 268 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week's episode was shorter than normal, Richard, but we kept noodling on it all week. There were some interesting aspects of the pericope, especially when you compare it with the one that came before, which dealt with the centurion and the Roman household. So we kept going this week, and that led to some interesting conversations. You and I couldn't stop talking about this because of two things, and you and I touched on it last time. The first point is this contrast between the centurion and Peter. The centurion made such a big deal to Jesus, don't come to my house. Whereas Peter evidently had no problem with Jesus coming into his house. The second one was the mother-in-law. Why is it the mother-in-law? It seems non sequitur. It could have been his wife. It could have been his child. Actually, I think if it had been his child, it would have made more sense because it would have fit with the previous story. So why the mother-in-law? 
those are the questions that I was able to ask Father Paul and that you and I were able to talk about. And I think it led to some very interesting ideas that we can bring to this passage to get some more meaning out of it. We did our own mini study of the ancient household, both Jewish and otherwise, and we had a hard time coming up with an explanation of why the mother-in-law in particular was so important. Right. Father Paul helped me to make a connection here because the word for mother-in-law in Greek, specifically the wife's mother. So in Greek, there's a different word for the wife's mother as the mother-in-law, as opposed to the husband's mother, the mother-in-law to the wife. So there are different words in Greek. So this word for the wife's mother is penthera, which Father Paul linked to pente meaning five, the five books of the law. So in Peter's house was shut up the five books of the law. The centurion came out to Jesus so that his servant slash child would be healed. And Peter kept the five books of the law in his house so that Jesus had to come here. Well, this doesn't make sense because these books of the law, the Torah, are not just for the household of Judah, for the Jews. It's for all nations, and it should not be locked up. And so the way that Jesus was able to heal these five books of the law, so to speak, was to come into this house. But the result was that when they were healed, they served the Akonia. So the mother-in-law personified the five books of the law. This amplifies forcefully what we've been saying about the household of Abraham and the household of the Roman patrician. Because had Peter set the law free, had he opened it up to the nations, and of course Peter here is a metaphoric function, we're not speaking about the man Peter, had Peter who represents Judah, opened this teaching up to the nations, the Roman patrician would have already been joined to Abraham's household, and his servant would already have benefited from the wisdom of that instruction. And again, it's striking that once the mother-in-law is healed, suddenly others, especially the demon-possessed, those controlled by a false spirit of false teaching, are able now to come to receive healing. And this builds precisely on what you were saying last week, Father, when you were talking about how Israel failed in its calling to bear the iniquities of the nations, and that Jesus then had to come to be Israel. In the same way that in Matthew 2, Jesus was the son that God called out of Egypt. So Jesus is manifesting what Israel was supposed to have done. If you have been with us for a long time and you remember our episodes from Mark. Remember how Jesus was allergic to staying in cities and staying in houses because the word had to keep going out. But Israel was not doing its duty towards the nation, so Jesus had to. Peter is personifying this problem in holding up, in guarding, in locking down the Torah, the teaching of God, rather than bringing it to the nations. Those who are enslaved with a false teaching, with demons, with devils, only if they are able to hear the word can they be healed. But if Jesus is not going to be around forever, which we know he's not, they need the teaching to continue. 
Because it's not about Jesus himself, like we were saying in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about the teaching that Jesus brings, the word that Jesus brings. The word has to be available. And if it's locked up in somebody's house, it's not able to do its job. Matthew is proposing a teaching of the kingdom of God. And this is an idea, Richard, you're well aware that I'm working on in my presentation for the OCAB Symposium this week. Matthew is correcting our understanding of Abraham's household. It's tempting to say that he is somehow expanding the household to include the Romans. You could certainly describe it that way, but I want to be very specific in this case. Matthew is presenting the argument that Abraham's household is incomplete if it doesn't include all the nations. Meaning that if you think of Abraham's household as being just for a specific community of people, then you're not thinking about the scriptural household of Abraham. You're thinking about some human dynasty, like all of the human dynasties that are first constructed in the Toledot of Adam and his sons, and later in the story of the patriarchs. You're trying to impose an understanding of Abraham's household that is anti-scriptural. In Matthew, Abraham's household and subsequently the kingdom of God are inclusive of all of God's children. Israel, in the Torah and the Nevi'im, is called to bear witness to the teaching of the Torah for the sake of all the nations. That is not a New Testament idea. It is the teaching of the Bible. And that's why Israel's stumbling in Romans is so useful, because it can be used unto instruction. And we all know how Paul goes to great lengths to say that even though it could be made useful, it doesn't excuse Israel. And so now you see this parallel. On the one hand, Rich, we've been talking about the difference between the Roman centurion and Peter, but what we haven't pointed out is what's so essential for students of the Bible to understand, that at the end of the day, the centurion and Peter put their pants on the same way. Both the Jew and the Gentile in their household have someone who is infirm which is a very beautiful way of saying in Matthew that there is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. There is no difference between what we call clean and what others call unclean. There's no distinction. And the kingdom is the place where this understanding of the community of man is a commandment to which everyone submits. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Kelevo, which is to command, I command, I give orders. It's beautiful because it reflects, once again, Jesus taking ownership of his father's authority as a commander in the army of the kingdom. In a way here, Jesus is the new centurion. And... I love that he is departing as soon as he sees, in one translation, great multitudes. It can also be many multitudes. So crowds and crowds are coming, and he's not interested in the crowds because the crowds want to pin him down. 
The crowds want him to heal. They don't want to listen to him. And I think that chapter five about casting pearls to swine unlocks the meaning of Jesus's actions here because he taught the multitudes. He told them, here's the word. He healed some of them and then taught them. And then he moved on because this is what Jesus does. He moves on. People keep following because they want to keep hearing. They want to keep hearing. They want to keep hearing. But for Jesus, either they heard him or they didn't. He doesn't have a lot of things to say. It's pretty basic. You have to submit to God and to his teaching. And his teaching is available anywhere. It's on a scroll. You don't need Jesus the guy to talk to you. You can read the scroll and you'll know what it is, just like the first healing with the leper. The many multitudes are a problem. It's like you and I were saying, Father, you know, we in the church try to package the gospel and then repackage the gospel and then repackage the gospel to convince people who already claim to be Christians that they should be serving the poor. If you have to try seven times to explain to people that they need to serve the poor when they've already heard the gospel, you just wasted your time six times. You tell people, you know, part of the gospel is serving the poor. I know you've heard this before, so go serve the poor. And if they don't do it, repackaging it is casting pearls to swine. So Jesus taught, Jesus gave the message to the many multitudes, and he's moving on. The crowds won't let him because they don't want to hear him. They want to be healed. They don't listen to the word. They want the guy, Jesus, with them. And it's the word that Jesus brings. It can't be repackaged, as you said, Richard, because it's a command. It's an order. And here, the best example would be the classic statement of the parent to the child. What part of no don't you understand? How can you repackage no? I understand here that Jesus is not saying no, but any command given by a general, or in this case, the Messiah, is not up for debate. That's why it can't be repackaged. It is what it is. It's sitting on the table. You have to accept it or reject it. And the fact that Jesus is telling them, ordering them to depart to the other side of the sea is a way of demonstrating in the metaphor of Matthew that Jesus, not Caesar, has dominion over the Roman Sea. And of course, if Jesus is exercising that dominion, the one who truly holds that power is his father. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So here we have a scribe. So this is someone who specializes in scripture. Their job is to write and to know what the law says, know what the teaching says. He is approaching Jesus as a teacher. I mean, we often translate master, but the word in Greek is didaskale, teacher. So here's someone who knows scripture and he's like, aha, here's somebody who knows scripture. I want to follow him so that I can know, we'll assume, scripture. Again, we have to be careful. We don't psychologize these people. But He's a scribe. He wants to be better at the teaching. Now, is that for him to be selfish and just know it for himself, or is it to share with others? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Israel was called to bear witness to God's instruction and to bear the infirmities of the nations and kept shying away from that very high calling. 
of course, Jesus now, as the suffering servant in Matthew, the one whom Matthew presents as the suffering servant, ultimately is going to take the place of criminals on the cross. Though we're early in Matthew, it might be helpful just to frame that in people's minds. The way to think of the cross in context of Isaiah and Deuteronomy is to think of an execution where the one put in front of everyone to be executed is de facto guilty. There's no question that the person who's about to be executed committed murder or theft or some kind of crime that everyone recognizes. To the extent that the instruction of the law of Moses demands mercy and justice and compassion, one who is bearing witness to that teaching, before there was a New Testament, one who was called to bear witness to the teaching of Moses would have to be ready to take the place of the one being executed. That's why Paul, when he deals with Deuteronomy and Galatians, talks about the curse of the law. You take a criminal who's convicted and you execute them publicly so that everyone will understand the consequences of disobedience to the law. But the twist is that you can teach the consequences of disobedience to the law, even if you yourself have not transgressed the law, comma, and we all know that everyone at some point has transgressed the law, which means that any one of us could be up there getting executed, which means that if you are a disciple of this teaching, why not take that person's place? That is not a teaching of the New Testament. It's just that in the New Testament, Jesus does what no one was willing to do before. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you are a citizen of the kingdom, you take the place of criminals on the cross and you live as a homeless man with no earthly citizenship because your allegiance is to your heavenly Father and you are called to be his suffering servant and to bear witness to his kingdom and his teaching. Exactly, Father. You don't have a home in this world. Jesus' home is the kingdom. He does not have a home even as much as foxes or birds have homes, let alone people. Houses he shuns, like I mentioned a moment ago. And the warning here that the Son of Man, the human being who desires to be a citizen of this kingdom, does not have a house. So the scribe has to realize that if he wants to follow this law, it has to keep going out. This really highlights the contrast between what Peter is doing with the law and what Jesus is doing with the law, with the teaching, with the Torah. Jesus is making sure, above all, that this teaching goes to everyone. He does not have time to build a house. He does not have time to settle down because he's going to, his entire life, travel and teach this teaching. That's it. That's all he's doing is going around teaching this teaching. So if you want to be a scribe and you want to be a true student of the word and a student of Jesus, you go out. 
you go out, you go out, because the word has to continue to spread. The metaphor that was most common in Mark was the sowing of the seed. Matthew, we don't have as much reference to that, but the idea is the same. The word has to keep going out. Jesus can't be holed up like a fox in a hole. It's hard, Richard, not to hear this passage in light of Father Paul's teaching of the dominant paradigm of shepherdism throughout the Bible. So on the one hand, Matthew is presenting the kingdom and Jesus's allegiance to the kingdom. As a citizen of the kingdom, he has no earthly address. His address, his home address, so to speak, is in the proclamation of his father's hegemony in the coming kingdom. But what's interesting is that plays out in everyday life with the shepherding paradigm, because the nomadic peoples, and Jesus is the shepherd Messiah in Matthew, the nomadic peoples don't have an address. They just wander in the spirit of Genesis in the care of the Lord on the land, on the earth, lowercase e, not the planet, but the land, a land. And so the question for both Peter and the scribe, who claim to be disciples of the teaching of Moses— The question for them is, why aren't they nomadic with Jesus? Why isn't their allegiance to this kingdom in which the Lord provides life in the earth of promise? Why? The disciples, even, let alone the crowds, don't understand that they can be citizens of this kingdom if they want to sign up to the constitution of this kingdom, which is the Torah. The Torah is available to everybody. Oftentimes, theologians, they get caught up in this already not yet paradigm. Is the kingdom now? Is it not the kingdom now? And this sort of thing. I mean, the kingdom is now functionally, but for you, the listener, it may not be functional. If there's a Ukrainian at the American embassy in Kiev and wants to come to the United States, the kingdom of the United States, the government of the United States, is absolutely now. But for the guy waiting at the embassy, it's not yet because they haven't issued his papers. But as soon as they issue his papers, then it's already. Okay. The United States is a functional reality, but for that person, it's not a functional reality. That's the difference. For the scribe, the kingdom is not yet. For Jesus, it's already because he's already a citizen of the kingdom. He's already following the precepts of the kingdom, the constitution of the kingdom. He's an emissary of the kingdom. Whereas for the scribe, he has not signed up for it. He has not filled out the paperwork, so to speak, to become a citizen. He does not hold the passport yet, so it is not functional for him. Look, if you live in a small town in middle America, out in the countryside, in some ways, the idea of the American government is it's not real in a tangible sense. It's just an idea. It's just a function in your mind. And that function in your mind maintains the social contract. So without there being a thousand police on the street, without you seeing the U.S. military running its tanks through your streets, without a daily visit from the president of the United States or the governor of your state, you behave a certain way. You behave correctly according to the social contract. You could take the entire infrastructure of the country away, and the people in that town could still choose to live as though the social contract is still being established by the full force of the United States government. 
And that is how Jesus acts in Matthew. It's not that the Father is marching his troops through Rome. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is behaving as though his Father is doing so. Jesus is behaving as though the social contract of the kingdom of heaven set forth in Matthew is at hand. That's the point that you're making, Rich. And it's really powerful. You can choose the reality in which you live. Or in the case of Scripture, you can choose to submit to the reality imposed here in Matthew. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. This is a forceful reminder of the folly of the Toledot of Cain in Genesis, of the folly of the line of Judah played out through Jacob. These are human lines who incorrectly define the Toledot of Abraham in terms of human dynasty, and Matthew, like Genesis, is insisting and correcting once again that the household of Abraham is a broad tent inclusive of all the nations. So if you want to put your trust in a human seed that fails, you'll be left for dead with the dead of that line. But if you put your trust in the kingdom, you put your trust in the seed of the father which cannot die and produces life in Matthew. I agree completely, Father. The earthly father, when you bury him, will only produce fleshly fruit, which is fleshly glory, which is fleshly respect. Everyone knows that you're conducting yourself correctly according to what your family and your clan and your tribe expect of you. You have your reward. But if you want the reward of the kingdom, then that is the father, as you said, whose seed can actually bear fruit of the spirit, so to speak, meaning fruit that will not die, fruit that will continue generation after generation. Human lines end. That's why you have to bury your father. God's seed does not. That's why Jesus is resurrected in the end. You focus on being a citizen of the kingdom and not a citizen of your tribe of your clan, of your family, of your nation, because they will ultimately come into conflict. If you're a citizen of your clan and a poor person from another clan comes in and you've got a poor person in your clan, you've got a very difficult decision to make. Do you take care of that person outside of your clan or the person inside of your clan? It's a very difficult decision. But if you're a member of the kingdom, it's not a difficult decision. There's no difference. It's easy. Who are you going to belong to? For Peter, the law belonged to the Jews and to his house. For Jesus, there is no time even to spend with many crowds. He has to go find the next potential student. He is going to count only on the comfort and the life and the leadership of his own father, who gave this seed, who gave this teaching, who gave this word, who gave this Torah, so that all nations can have access to it and all nations can become citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus' Father.
it's like, Richard, the short talk I gave on the occasion of a young man's birthday at St. Elizabeth, who happens to be of Ethiopian heritage. I told him that he should be proud of his Ethiopian heritage, but at the same time be a citizen of the kingdom so that his heritage and his table would be inclusive of his Eritrean neighbors, so that he would have as much pride and as much appreciation of their heritage as his brothers. The same could be said of Americans and their relation to immigrants. The same could be said, as we've said many times, of the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians. They are only disciples of the kingdom when they call each other brother and sister. This is what Matthew is trying to explain. He's not changing anything. He's explaining that this was the point all along, and the story of Jesus is presented only to consolidate the point and to complete the story, to complete the narrative. Because although this was the teaching of the Old Testament, it didn't happen until the story of Jesus completed the narrative circle. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.